0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're here to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Israel-Palestine, and particularly the Palestinian Authority might be losing control of the West Bank.
1: Uh, Yeah, there was an incident this week that I think uh, probably deserves more attention than it's getting. Uh, On Wednesday, the Palestinian Authority sent its security forces into uh, a refugee camp in Tukaram, a town in the northern West Bank to battle with what they called local militants. Uh, A Palestinian official uh, later described it as a Palestinian Islamic Jihad cell, which is not quite the same thing since PIJ is uh, headquartered in Gaza. But either way, uh, there was one person killed. They may have been a civilian who was uh, caught in the crossfire, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Either way, it's... I think, indicative of the Palestinian Authority losing control of the West Bank. Uh, This has been happening for a while now. Obviously, people living under Palestinian Authority governance, such as it is in the West Bank, long ago soured on the PA. I mean, the the polling approval ratings for Mahmoud Abbas and other uh, senior PA officials are just terrible. And, and, you know, I mean, it's a, an ineffectual, corrupt organization. But we, what we've been seeing over the past couple of years is, I think, largely due to the scale and intensity of Israeli violence in the West Bank over that period of time, the PA has now started to territorially lose parts of the West Bank. You see a, a, a rise and a strengthening uh, of local militants like the Lion's Den Group and Nablus. This is not a new phenomenon, but it's certainly intensifying uh, in recent years. You see Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas gaining ground in the West Bank at the PA's expense. Um, so I think this is something to watch. Uh, and And I think the Israeli government, if it pushes to the point where the Palestinian Authority really collapses, they're going to regret it because the Palestinian Authority, if nothing else, uh, has been a pretty reliable agent for the occupation uh, over the last 25 years, and I think, or, you know, give or take, uh, and I think if it goes away, that's going to make the burden of maintaining the the occupation uh, harder for the Israelis more, it's going to require more work on their part. Now that said, there was a story in the uh, Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, Apparently the Saudi government has offered to start funding the Palestinian Authority again. That could help, I guess, bolster the Palestinian Authority's capabilities in the West Bank, maybe help it, you know, hire some more security forces or equip them a little bit better to deal with some of these groups that are challenging it. However, uh, what that sounds like is a, a prelude to the Saudis normalizing relations with Israel, another part of kind of laying the groundwork for the Saudis to throw the Palestinians under the bus while still being able to claim that they care about the Palestinian cause because they're funding the Palestinian Authority, which really at this point has nothing to do with the Palestinian cause except as a manager of the occupation. But that's, that may be where, where this is going. And if, if that happens, the funding is probably going to be less relevant. Uh, Than the fallout from the Saudis normalizing relations with Israel, which is going to really redound, I think, against the the Palestinian Authority and against the whole peace process, because it's another example for the Palestinians themselves uh, that they are being cast adrift by the rest of the Arab world. Derek, what peace process at this point? I mean, it just seems like it's it's Yeah, no, there isn't one, I think. But, but, you know, you can know that and have it in the back of your mind. And then you can have it shoved in your face when the largest power in the Arab world says, you know, hey, screw you guys, we're normalizing relations with Israel. And that's, uh, that could be a flashpoint, I think. So
0: to me, it seems like it's a pretty grim situation. I, I just don't see a way out of it for the Palestinian people. Is there any hope here?
1: I I don't see one. I mean, the hope was always that the Israeli government would eventually value normalization with its neighbors over maintaining the occupation. But now they get to do both. uh, And it's clear that the the current Israeli government now, admittedly, that government has generated a lot of backlash in Israel. But the current Israeli government has no intention of giving up the West Bank. In fact, it wants to annex the West Bank at a fundamental level. Ideologically, the settler movement is committed to that. So... You know, every time Benjamin Netanyahu talks about Judea and Samaria instead of the West Bank, he's talking about annexation. I mean, that's that's what the language is. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think this is a you know, pretty bleak situation for for the Palestinians.
0: Thanks, Derek. Uh, pretty grim stuff. Uh, let's give an update on Sudan and by let us,
1: I mean, let you. Uh, yeah. So um, there's not much to say about the, the conflict. It's continuing, you know, everywhere that we've been talking about in Khartoum and uh, the cities around Khartoum in, you know, all at this point, the states of of the Darfur region in north and south Kordofan states. It's it's continuing uh, everywhere that it has been going on. A couple of things off the battlefield did uh, happen this week uh, over the weekend The head of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, went public with a 10-point peace plan that, among other things, uh, this is, I mean, this is sort of, you have to laugh at how absurd it is. Among other things, it calls for the Rapid Support Forces to be merged into the Sudanese military uh, under civilian oversight, even though back in April when the RSF and the military started fighting one another, one of the reasons why the RSF started fighting was that it didn't want to be De Gallo didn't want it to be merged into the military uh, under civilian oversight. So uh, just, just ridiculous stuff here, I guess. So that's probably not going to go anywhere. And indeed, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the, the head of the Sudanese military, uh, rejected it pretty categorically on Monday uh, when he visited Port Sudan. Uh, he referred to the RSF uh, as a rebel group, essentially, as a you know, this is a rebellion uh, and said uh, that we do not make deals with traitors. That's a quote. Uh, so I don't think he's too keen on on this peace plan. Uh, Burhan being in Port Sudan is the other part of the story because he's been stuck, essentially besieged uh, in the army headquarters in Khartoum since this conflict started. He hasn't left. Uh, hadn't even left that building, I don't think. Uh, This week he went on a, uh, or kind of last week and this week, he went on a bit of a tour of Sudan, as I said, winding up in Port Sudan, and then from there went to Egypt. So actually made a trip abroad. He met with his buddy uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi in uh, al Alamein in Egypt. Uh, They have a lot in common, obviously, as generals who took power uh, politically. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know what they talked about, probably just expressed, C.C. Uh, just expressed his support for Burhan and the, the Sudanese military. But uh, I think the, the point was that he was able to make the trip. So he's trying to make a demonstration that uh, the RSF doesn't control his movements, that, you know, it's uh, uh, he's able to come and go as he pleases. And I think the statement is uh, worth more than anything that they might have discussed at the meeting. Thanks, Derek. Uh, could you give an update on Niger? Yes. So there's a few things uh, to note here. On Friday, the Nigerian junta gave the French ambassador in uh, Nyame Sylvain Sylvan Ité. Uh, everybody loves my French pronunciation. I know. Uh, gave him 48 hours to uh, Amsgray essentially, uh, to to get out of the country. The uh, uh, apparently the story I goes heard that amsgray in a while. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I love to keep these things in, in reserve for uh, when they're when they're useful. Uh, Itay had refused to meet with the junta's foreign minister. The Junta cited other things that the French government has done that are uh, supposedly contrary to the interests uh, of Niger. The French government then turned around and insisted Emmanuel Macron on Monday said that Ita would not be going anywhere and that the French government, since it doesn't recognize the Junta, doesn't recognize the Junta's right to expel foreign diplomats from Niame. So this has led to, I guess, something of an impasse. The Junta uh, has, as of uh, Thursday revoked Ite's diplomatic immunity and is, uh, you know, sending police to get him and make him leave the country. Uh, So that could turn, that could turn ugly in a hurry if, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens. The other thing to talk about, of course, is the uh, potential for a war between the junta and the, um, and what's left of the economic community of West African states. The HUNTA put its security forces on maximum alert this week over what it said was the threat uh, of an ECOWAS incursion. Uh, Nothing seems imminent, but uh, they did say the HUNTA said it wanted to, uh, and I'm quoting here, avoid a general surprise. So I guess they're they're feeling like it could happen at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future. I I still don't see a great appetite among ECOWAS members for an intervention, but the bloc has kind of painted itself into a corner now by taking a fully hard line against the the junta. The Algerian government then jumped into the fray on Tuesday, proposed a six-month civilian-led transition. Back to democratic governance in Niger. Um, you no, know, I haven't seen anything from the Nigerian junta to suggest that it would be uh, interested in a six month transition. In fact, they've proposed a three year transition, which ECOWAS rejected. But the Algerian government does see itself as a sort of interlocutor in West Africa generally and has had contacts with the junta. So they may know something that the rest of us don't about. Uh, what the junta would and would not at this point be willing to accept, I think if the the junta grabbed at this, then Ecowas would too. I don't again, I don't think there's a huge appetite among member states to actually go forward with an intervention. The French government would probably complain uh, about the fact that the you know former civilian government hasn't been restored, but I think it would go along with this. Uh, and the U.S. government, which won't even call, still won't even call last month's coup a coup officially because that would create all sorts of automatic sanctions, et cetera. I think the U.S. would be thrilled with this outcome, really. It's, It's the closest thing you get to kind of sweeping everything under the rug and going back to normal. So something to watch. I think it's interesting that the Algerian government proposed this. I don't know that they would have just gone out on a limb and offered this if they didn't think there was some possibility of it gaining traction. So we'll see.
0: Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about the coup in Gabon, but also, everyone, we're going to have a special on that in the next few days. Um, so if you want the detailed dive, uh, just wait for that. But Derek, maybe, maybe give us a little bit of a praise about what's been going on.
1: Yeah, so uh, the backdrop to this is there was an election on Saturday uh, with uh, President Ali Bongo uh, seeking re-election to a third term that would keep him uh, in office until at least 2030. Bongo won election in 2009, succeeding his father, Omar Bongo, uh, and won re-election in 2016, both times under a cloud, a strong cloud of suspicion that the elections had been rigged. Uh, Omar Bongo had been president of uh, Gabon since, I believe, 1967. So this is over about 55 years, I guess, that the Bongo family has monopolized power in that country. And so it perhaps comes as no great surprise uh, that on wednesday the same day that gabonese uh, election officials announced that bongo had won the election he was toppled in a military coup a group of mili- a group of officers removed him from office they arrested a number of people connected to him including his son ad-Din, on allegations of corruption um, so this is the seventh now sub-Saharan African country that's come under military rule in the past two years. It's the ninth coup overall. Burkina Faso and Mali have each seen two coups in that time frame. There's, you know, wait, wait, course- Derek.
0: I want you to pause on that. What is the major cause of this? Are, are these? climate wars? Um, are these transitions due to various political changes? Why is this
1: region seen I, so I don't many like, coups? Yeah, I mean, I don't like lumping them together, and I think there's a lazy tendency. Neither do I. That was in, a in test Western you to, Thank you. Uh, to, to say, you know, oh, Africa has a, a coup problem, or a coup contagion is the thing I've heard. It's just ridiculous language. But obviously, there may be some, like, you know, oh, what are they doing over there? Maybe we should do that here. There's uh, probably some of that going on but but it's hard to draw any parallels between what's happened in Gabon and say what's happened in Niger or in Burkina Faso or Mali there's no Islamist insurgency to speak of in, in Gabon so it's not like the military is is getting you know you know people are dying soldiers are dying in uh, futile operations or anything like that to create resentment. Uh, I think really the the issue here is the Bongo family and the fact that they've been in power so long uh, and probably illegitimately just had people fed up. Uh, I don't think it's a great surprise that this happened on the day that the election results were announced. And you know I've seen people say, well, the military must have been planning this. They couldn't have just been responding to the election results. I mean, you don't have to be Nostradamus at this point to guess that Bongo was going to rig the election. So I don't think, uh, you know, it took much predictability or prediction ability to, to figure that out. So, uh, you know, I do think that the election is the trigger. We don't know very much about the junta. The, the temporary at least head of state now for Gabon is, uh, has been appointed. Uh, his name is Brise Oligui Nguema, Uh, He is the commander of the Gabonese Republican Guard. Uh, He's also Ali Bongo's cousin. So that's a little awkward, I guess, for the next family reunion. Everybody wants to know every time one of these coups happens, uh, has the uh, coup leader been involved in any U.S. counterterrorism training? There does seem to be a theme uh, running through that. But uh, I don't know. In Nguema's case, as the commander of an elite military unit in a friendly country, the chances are pretty good that he has... Uh, at some time or another undergone U.S. military training, but I I don't have any uh, evidence one way or the other. Uh, The reaction has been, you know, what you would expect. France, the former colonial powers, condemned the coup, and I, I, you know, I I don't know. Yeah, I don't like to generalize all these coups, but maybe Francophone Africa does have kind of a coup problem, which uh, is probably because the French government, or partly because the French government won't leave its former colonies alone, but I digress. Uh, The African Union has condemned it. The UN has condemned it. Uh, The U.S. government has expressed concern uh, along with China, the European Union. There have been reports of fairly substantial protests in favor of the coup and support of the coup. So marches, demonstrations uh, in support of the coup in Libreville, uh, the capital of Gabon. Of course, it's impossible to know if that is reflective of the overall national mood. Uh, Bongo has has sent out at least one video that I know of calling for international support uh, for all the good that's going to do him that doesn't uh, seem to have helped any of his uh, fellow civilian heads of state in these other countries that have uh, undergone coups, so I don't expect he'll get much from that. Uh, the junta did come out Thursday. I guess they're trying to, to hit this fairly quickly uh, and announced that they will... Uh, Begin phasing in a transitional government soon, and that they will respect. This was the term they used. Uh, their commitments, both external and internal. Uh, so I, I wonder if this is not a way to kind of short circuit uh, any kind of international outcry. The, the Nigerian Clinton was a little slow to to do anything like that, and and maybe has contributed to to uh, the fact that that's been so controversial, and there's been such. International opposition; these guys may be trying to move quickly to kind of tamp those flames down. But uh, you know, again, we'll have to have to wait and see. It's still uh, very early here. All
0: right, Derek. Let's talk a bit about the most famous victim of vaccine madness, Yevgeny Prigozhin.
1: Yeah, man. I, you know, I uh, I was stunned to find out uh, the Russian government uh, said this on Wednesday, and I don't believe it but if they do, I don't know, it's caused me to question some things. They're suggesting that the plane crash that that killed Yevgeny Prigozhin, the the Wagner Group founder last week, may have been intentional. It may have been deliberately caused. I refuse to believe it. I refuse to believe it. I just, it. I I can't, I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's, uh, uh, it's uh, hard to imagine. I'm sure, anyway, uh, what I, I take songless in the fact that if it was intentionally caused, I'm sure that the uh, Russian authorities will do everything, they can't find the culprits. They'll leave no stone uh, unturned. So uh, just just, uh, you know, I, it's a little little uh, shaky, you know, kind of shaking my worldview here. But uh, but I know that they'll they'll do what they need to do to to get the, the vile people who did this.
0: All right, Derek, let's talk about Ukraine. But before we do, um, I'm working on the introduction to a collection of essays that I have coming out, titled Imperialist Realism. And I'm going back and I'm reading a lot of the early left-wing responses to the Russian invasion. And it's pretty funny how (laughs) everything that wasn't supposed to happen, the the noble United States sending unlimited arms to Ukraine, it, it turns out to have happened. So more forthcoming on that soon. But Derek, what's been going on?
1: So, there's a couple of developments this week. Um, there are indications that the Ukrainians have developed uh, a more robust long range strike capability, and there's a couple of instances on Friday. Uh, they launched essentially a drone swarm uh, on Crimea, there were dozens of, of drones involved. Um, I, I don't know how successful the attack was uh, any anything like this in, in this conflict you get uh, vastly different interpretations from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side uh, it does sound like at least a few of those drones got through uh, and caused some damage of course the Russians insist you know they shot down uh, everything but just the size of the attack I think is uh, is noteworthy that they used I think 42 drones that's that's not been. Ukraine style when they undertake drone strikes. Uh, it's been you know, uh, one or two drones here or one or two drones there to, to send that many in one mission is, is interesting. On Wednesday morning, the Ukrainians targeted at least six regions in Russia with drone strikes. Now, none of these seems to have been especially large, but Targeting six regions at once is a fairly substantial operation. Uh, I don't know the success rate in most of them. There was clear evidence that they uh, were able to strike the airport in Peskov, which is a city in northwestern Russia, damaging aircraft, causing a fire. There were other indications of explosions in Bryansk, But I, I don't know that there's been any confirmation of any any sort of damage in those other places. But again... Pretty sizable, out of character operation for the Ukrainian drone strikes or for u- Ukraine's drone operations. Volodymyr Zelensky then on Thursday uh, said that, in fact, Ukraine has developed a long-range weapon that that can target uh, up to 400 miles or 700 kilometers away. Uh, this is important in that the Ukrainians have been sort of asking for long-range artillery and other long-range weaponry from the U.S., and they've been getting turned down, you know, turned down in the same sense that a few weeks ago they were getting turned down, or a couple months ago they were getting turned down on the F-16. So, you know, I suspect they will get these things eventually. But so far, the Biden administration has said no, in part because it has expressed concerns about U.S. weaponry winding up, being used in attacks on Russian soil and what that could uh, mean in terms of escalation. So the Ukrainians seem to be developing their own options unless they're getting them from somewhere else. But, you know, the, the evidence that we have uh, at this point, which admittedly isn't much uh, is that they're developing domestically their own uh, capability here. So that's interesting. I think, um, you know, it maybe puts some targets in Ukraine and some of these occupied Regions of Ukraine, some tactical uh, Russian targets in range of Ukrainian fire, if that's true, and also enables them to do as they've been doing this week to bring the war into Russia in a in a bigger way. So uh, you know, could be an interesting development there. Uh, the other thing of note is that there's increasing chatter about a Ukrainian breakthrough in, along the southeast. Front in their counteroffensive a uh, week ago, maybe now they announced the capture of a village called Robotinia, uh, which is located in Zaporizhzhia Oblast. Um, and the the suggestions are that that not only did they capture the village, but they pressed on a little bit south and have managed to open some kind of gap uh, at this point, pretty small, uh, in the Russian defensive line. Uh, if they are able. To expand that gap enough to move, start moving large amounts of troops and vehicles through it. And that's a, a big if because the Russians still have air superiority, they have artillery superiority. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to, to overcome here. And of course, the area is heavily mined and they still have pretty strong defensive positions. But the feeling is that maybe they can uh, make a move on the town of Tokmak, which is further south. Uh, it's something of a logistical hub for the Russians in that province. The ultimate goal here is Melitopol, the city in the southern part of zaporizhia Oblast that uh, uh, the U.S. the U.S. intelligence community assesses the Ukrainians aren't going to be able to to do it. That they don't have the Jews to get there. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, that that's the ultimate goal of the counteroffensive. I think at this point, because the Ukrainians feel like if they had control of Melitopol, they could break the Russian position in ukraine in half uh and separate kind of disconnect the the donbass from crimea but that's that's a long way off even if they do get a real breakthrough here uh that's still a long way off and uh, as i say the u.s intelligence community there have been reports of this uh, is now skeptical that they're going to be able to do it
0: thanks derek uh let's move on to the new cold war update and could you talk a bit about the expansion of the (laughs) BRICS?
1: Yes. Uh, so you know, we talked last week about the BRICS summit and that expansion was on the table. Uh, the gang wound up somewhat surprisingly on Thursday when it wrapped up in Johannesburg, uh, inviting six countries to join BRICS, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I don't think uh, most people, uh, most observers, at least the analysts that I was, you know, looked at, read, whatever, uh, expected... There was some expectation of expansion, but not six countries. And there had been discussions prior to the the summit of disagreements within BRICS about whether to expand at all. So the thinking was if they, they did expand, it would be like one or two countries. Uh, six countries coming in is uh, is surprising. All six will become members officially on January 1st. As far as I know, they'll have equal voting rights, uh, et cetera, to the five so-called original members. If you want to want to put it that way, actually, there's four original members, in South Africa came on a, a year later. But uh, you know, I, I don't think the governance is going to change within the group. This is a big step. If if BRICS is going to become, as as you know, a lot of people have suggested, it could be the voice of the the global South or the voice of the new non-aligned movement, or whatever you know, however you want to term it, this is obviously a uh, a huge step. You've got a number of so-called global south nations in being added. All of them, I think, uh, except Iran, I guess, really part of the so-called non-aligned movements that's emerged over the the war in Ukraine. So you know, it, it really does expand BRICS reach uh, in that direction. It adds four Middle Eastern states to a group that had none. Uh, it adds three major oil producers to a group that had, uh, you know, really Russia. I mean, you could argue about Brazil, I guess, but uh, Russia is the only unambiguous major oil producer. So it changes the complexion uh, of BRICS quite a bit. And, and of course, there's the discussion about whether the Russian and Chinese governments are going to be able to use BRICS to, to create this anti-West block. Uh, I think it's going to be harder uh, with countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, um, Ethiopia that all have good relations. Argentina to some extent, depending on uh, the government that's in power, I suppose, at any given time. But, you know, whether these countries uh, are, are willing would be willing to, to be in an explicitly anti-West bloc, I suspect not, because they're, uh, they're still uh, very friendly with the U.S. and, and Western countries. So a uh, lot of implications to work out here, but it's, uh, again, a very surprising outcome, I think, for the summit and uh, something that will definitely have ramifications uh, moving forward.
0: Could you talk a bit how, about how this does or doesn't relate to the new Cold War?
1: Um, well, it's, it, you know, the, again, there's been this speculation from certain quarters in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, especially that China wants to turn BRICS into a, a weapon, into a a, a a way to counter... Uh, the U.S. The way to counter the U.S.-dominated finan- global financial system—a uh, counter to institutions like the West Bank and the IMF—and and to some degree, it 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 could serve as that. I mean, certainly, you know, member states have talked about trading amongst themselves in local currencies rather than using the dollar. BRICS does have its own development bank, so there are, it it does set up in some ways as an alternative to that uh, Western-led order. But uh, again, the question is how far. Do you want to push that? And I think, uh, again, adding these new members and and plus, you know, some of the existing members, India, Brazil, uh, these are countries that don't have a great deal of interest in antagonizing, uh, overtly antagonizing the U.S. So, uh, you know, I I don't see BRICS becoming that if that's really what the Chinese government is is intending. And I'm not sure that it is. uh, I certainly don't see it becoming that.
0: Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about a secretary of commerce, Gina Raimondo's trip to China.
1: Yes, uh, she's the fourth now um, m- senior Biden administration official to visit China in in the last several weeks. Uh, Anthony Blinken, secretary of state, went to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, the administration's climate envoy, John Kerry. So she's uh, number four. And like the previous three, I think uh, her trip was basically about agreeing to keep talking. Like, we're going to talk about having more regular discussions uh, in the future. and Essentially, rebuilding to some extent uh, the dialogue that that the U.S. and China maintained prior to, well, certainly prior to the spy balloon, the great spy balloon controversy of 2023. But even before that, things were, were turning frosty. So I think there, there's some intention of trying to get back to more regular dialogue without giving up any of the things that the u.s has done to undercut the chinese economy i'm not sure you can do those things uh, both of those things but the administration seems to uh to believe it can and now I, I don't i'm not aware of any substantive uh really serious substantive results that that emerged from this uh this meeting And i don't think that was the goal it's just uh, you know we're trying to we have this good vibes thing man where, you know Trying we, we get, want good vibes you know, hang 10 like we want to be able to impose export controls on china and to you know uh criticize china but we don't want the chinese government to respond in any way uh and that's really the dynamic here and I, again i think it's entirely unrealistic but uh, that's that's what they're doing and let's conclude with this new map that china released Uh, Yeah. Earlier this week, uh, China released a map of its claims in the South China Sea. Now, these are already under dispute, obviously, but the map itself uh, has apparently generated a fair bit of controversy. Their all-encompassing claims in the South China Sea cut through uh, the exclusive economic zones of a number of countries – um they claim islands that are claimed already by other countries in the the south china sea uh literal so uh it's it's a, an ongoing source of controversy uh in this case the governments in the philippines malaysia and vietnam have all commented uh, negatively on this map uh and its claims uh the taiwanese government has also done that but taiwan's a bit of a special case since uh you know the Chinese government doesn't recognize Taiwan's independence period so it would have no uh, claims then but these other countries are are you know definitely have been in a back and forth and i think from the perspective of the new cold war there there is maybe nothing that the chinese government does if we think about the new cold war as a project for kind of who has more influence and sway uh, in east asia or southeast asia there is nothing uh the chinese government does to drive countries toward the u.s more than than these claims in the south china sea which uh, i don't i i have no position on legitimacy international law does not seem to be on their side Uh, i take no position on that what what i would say though is that it is not winning china any friends in that region thank you derek and we'll see you all soon bye bye
0: bye